0: Hello, and welcome to A Baha'i Conversation. My name is Anthony Naimi. And I'm Michael Sabat. We started A Baha'i Conversation as a way to enrich our own understanding of the Baha'i writings, to share some of the insights from those writings, and hopefully to spark further Baha'i conversations. In each episode, we look at a particular dimension of the
1: teachings of the Baha'i Faith, explore how it relates to ideas and society at large, and discuss how it might serve the needs of humanity today.
0: Today, Michael's going to share some of his thoughts on the nature and purpose of prayer from a Baha'i perspective. As always, we'll then have a discussion. We hope that you will continue the conversation by sending us your thoughts and questions.
1: Hello, everyone. For today's podcast, I'm going to talk about prayer. Prayer is a topic that uh, we often don't get a chance to talk about in our day-to-day lives, so I'm very grateful for this chance to help clarify my own understanding of it. It's also, of course, a vast topic. It's one that touches on so many other things, from metaphysical questions about the nature of God and the nature of the human being, to social questions about how we relate to each other. So I'm not going to attempt to be comprehensive. Instead, I'm going to make this a personal discussion, focusing on the questions about prayer that most speak to me, uh, as someone for whom prayer isn't really intuitive. What I mean by that is that even though I grew up believing that prayer was important and I did learn prayers, I haven't had much of that instinctual reliance on prayer that many people, even in today's secular society, still have. Because of that, I feel as though I I approach what the Baha'i writings have to say about prayer with kind of a clean slate. And I'm hoping to learn from those writings what prayer is really all about without imposing too many unstated cultural understandings of my own. But inevitably, like anyone, I will be speaking from my own bias. And so rather than hoping that you're going to agree with something I say, My hope is that you will find something that inspires your own questions and a search for answers. This is especially true with respect to my understanding of the Baha'i writings. You know, Bahá'u'lláh writes, Immerse yourselves in the ocean of my words, that ye may unravel its secrets and discover all the pearls of wisdom that lie hid in its depths. And this statement for me is God's invitation to humanity. If you can imagine yourself at the shore of an ocean watching a diver emerge holding some beautiful bauble, you don't want to be content with whatever that diver happens to bring up because there may be far, far greater pearls under the waves, if you're willing to dive in to this ocean of the writings yourself. And you don't need a license or training to do this kind of diving, just an open heart and mind. So, with all that by way of introduction, here's the approach that I'm going to take in discussing prayer. I'm going to try to put myself in the shoes of a person learning about the concept of prayer in a serious way for the first time. As such a person, I'm interested, or at least intrigued, but I'm also skeptical. So first, I'm going to want to have some of my fundamental reasons for skepticism about prayer uh, addressed. Then I'm going to hope to get some explanation of what prayer is. How am I to conceive of this activity called prayer? Once I have some idea of what prayer is, then the question will be, how do I pray, and what should I pray for? In other words, what are the proper goals of prayer? But before getting into what prayer is or might be, let's start with the skeptics question. Why should we even believe in prayer? Now we might have many reasons to be skeptical about prayer, but perhaps the most fundamental is that I might be skeptical that there's any entity out there capable of hearing everyone's prayers, let alone answering them. Now to address this point of skepticism, I'll rely on an analogy, uh, not in order to say that this analogy is the correct way of understanding the relationship between God and us, but just to crack open the door of possibility for someone who may not see a way to believe in an omniscient God. And if this analogy points to one way to understand such a being, then there may be other ways too, some of which may come closer to the truth. So the analogy that I'll bring up here is is that of a computer programmer and her program. Now, this is, of course, an increasingly popular way in which people, um, secular people often, understand our universe. Uh, It's often brought, invoked in sort of a ground-up attempt to understand the physical universe rather than a top-down way to help us think about God. But regardless, the analogy is a very powerful one. So let's imagine a programmer who has created a video game. She can monitor every phenomena within that game. She can make herself aware of anything that has been done or said by any character in that game. She can also become aware of any change in their internal condition because everything pertaining to them is part of that program that she created. And she can gain all this information immediately if she so wishes by pausing the game to look at these things at her leisure. Now the characters in the game, if they're self-aware, need not be aware that time has stopped and started again while all of their inner conditions are being monitored. In fact, from their perspective, time hasn't stopped. Now, of course, it's interesting to note that if we continue with this analogy, we also recognize that it's fully possible for this programmer to intervene in the game in any way that she wants, including by altering the code in the game to create violations of seemingly immutable laws within the game. So in other words, she can create miracles. I'm not going to go too far into this question, which could relate to what effects prayer has in the world, because as I think will become clear, uh, my own understanding is that prayer's most important goals aren't at all related to trying to get God to intervene directly to change brute facts about the world around us. I'll just leave it uh, pointing out that the analogy doesn't rule out that possibility. All right, so if this way of thinking is enough to at least open my mind to the conceptual coherence of prayer, next I might want to get a clearer picture of what prayer is actually supposed to be. So on the one hand, our most basic understanding of prayer might be that we say some words directed to God or gods. Now, in my experience, when I don't make an effort to move past this understanding, my prayer life is unfulfilling. It can end up feeling like a rote activity, the mindless recital of a statement that doesn't even engage my mind, let alone touch my soul. If we think of prayer as simply the act of saying some words, there's also a risk that we fall into a kind of magical thinking, where we're reciting an incantation. So long as the form of the thing is right, in other words, we come to believe that it will have some desired effect. As is going to become apparent later, even if this were the case, and I personally don't think it is, this kind of prayer would largely miss one of the central purposes of praying, Uh, So spoiler alert, um, I'm going to suggest that prayer is less about getting what we want or think we want than it is about aligning our will with the will of God. Okay, so if we want to move past an understanding of prayer as being some uh, words that we throw at God, the way we place an order at a fast food restaurant, how else might we understand prayer? Well, let's uh, look at something that Abdu'l-Bahá has said about prayer. There is nothing sweeter in the world of existence than prayer, Man must live in a state of prayer. The most blessed condition is the condition of prayer and supplication. Prayer is conversation with God. The greatest attainment or the sweetest state is none other than conversation with God. It creates spirituality, creates mindfulness and celestial feelings, begets new attractions of the kingdom, and engenders the susceptibilities of the higher intelligence. This is a very powerful statement. It gives us the image of conversation with God. So what do we know about conversation? Well, a conversation is not one-sided, and at its best, it's not rushed. Conversation is patient, and it involves so much more than words. The conversations we love to have are the ones where our tone and our expressions communicate an underlying foundation of love and connection on which we build our words. The statement that uh, I just read also reveals some of the results of this kind of conversation with God. Abdu'l-Bahá talks about mindfulness, celestial feelings, new attractions of the kingdom, the susceptibilities of the higher intelligence. Without trying to unpack what each of these might mean, we find that there are rich rewards to prayer that have nothing to do with whatever we might be asking for in our prayers. And a good conversation, I think, is like that. Even if later you don't quite remember what you talked about, You remember the warm feelings it created, the smile it left on your face, and the deeper connection it fostered between you and the person you were conversing with. Now, in this passage, abdul baha has also said that man must live in a state of prayer. And I personally love this statement. Uh, I should specify that I love it in much the same way that I love Hawaii, Uh, not as something that I have much direct experience of, but the idea of it makes me smile and I hope to reach it someday. Uh, It seems to hold out the promise of a way of living and being in the world where there's always connection, a connection that goes beyond words. In other words, I don't think that Abdu'l-Bahá is saying that when he says we must live in a state of prayer, that we must be always speaking prayers or even reciting them in our minds. We wouldn't really be able to get much done in life if that was the case. I think instead that this state of prayer has something to do with keeping a connection always open. The Baha'i writings are replete with statements telling us that God is never far from us, is in fact astonishingly close, closer to us than our life vein, Baha'u'llah tells us. God wants to commune with us, and yet we are usually far from God. God is speaking to us, smiling on us. He's right there, but we have our backs to him. Living in a state of prayer then might mean living in a way where we are turned towards and, and tuned into God. And then the conversation never ceases, even when there are no words. One hint as to how we might begin to think about living in this state of being turned to God comes from another statement in the Baha'i Writings, that work performed in the spirit of service is worship. So this brief discussion hasn't told us what prayer is, not in any scientific or descriptive sense. And given that prayer involves the human soul and God, both of which, Baha'u'llah tells us, are fundamentally unknowable to us, I won't attempt to pin down what prayer is more than this. But I do think we at least have this very rich image in the idea of conversation with God or communion with God that can inspire us. So let's now turn to the next question that I might have as a newcomer to prayer. What do I pray for? How do I pray? And the way that I'm going to try to answer this question is by focusing on what I see as three goals of prayer that can be found in the Baha'i writings. So let's begin with the first goal. Abdu'l-Bahá states, It behooveth the servant to pray to and seek assistance from God, and to supplicate and implore his aid. Such becometh the rank of servitude, and the Lord will decree whatsoever he desireth in accordance with his consummate wisdom." So we find one goal of prayer already in this statement. It's to seek assistance from God, and to supplicate and implore his aid. Now, right away, we're told that God is going to decide whatever he thinks is best. The Lord will decree whatsoever he desireth in accordance with his consummate wisdom. So we don't fall into thinking that we ask for God's assistance in order to strong arm him into giving us what we want or what we think we want. So if we're not assured that God is going to give us what we want, why ask for assistance at all? Well, Abdu'l-Bah has given us one important reason here. He says, such becometh the rank of servitude. So as I understand it, it's important to go to God with our wants, with our supplications, because that reaffirms the proper relationship between us. We actually see the same theme in a passage from the long obligatory prayer. Um, This is one of three special prayers of which Baha'is choose one that they say every day. So there's a passage in the long obligatory prayer that says, I love in this state, O my Lord, to beg of thee all that is with thee, Okay, so we're asking for everything that God has to bestow. That's potentially quite a lot. And it goes on to say, so, so why are we asking for all this? The prayer goes on to say, that I may demonstrate my poverty and magnify thy bounty and thy riches and declare my powerlessness and manifest thy power and thy might. That's the reason for which we ask God for all that is with him. Now, some may find the concept of um, servitude, or an acknowledgement of our powerlessness and God's power, off-putting. We often like to think of ourselves as fiercely independent and unconstrained. This perceived independence is fed by a culture of self-reliance and a valorization of individualism, at least in the society that I've grown up in. Many of us don't even like to imagine that we rely on other people or on our society as a whole for anything. We aspire to be totally self-sufficient. Coming from that place, the idea of praying for help can seem jarring, Uh, let alone praying in order to reaffirm our servitude. But ultimately, it's simply a question of the ontology of reality, the nature of what is. So whether or not there's a God, we're we're clearly living in a law-bound universe. We talk colloquially about stretching or bending the laws of physics, but really we're just exploring the parameters of those laws. A plane, for instance, flies in harmony with the laws of physics, not in defiance of them. So it behooves an engineer to be a servant of physics, to acknowledge the supremacy of the laws of physics, and then study how best to conform to them. Now, let's say you believe that there is a conscious will, God, who is responsible for all these laws, the laws of physics and all the other laws that govern our material and spiritual lives. And let's say you believe that this will is also specifically conscious of you. Now, that's, of course, a question for another day as to whether we should believe such a thing. But if we do, then it is perfectly rational and proper to ask for the aid of that god. That entity, if it exists according to these parameters, is inherently worthy of worship, just as its laws are inherently worthy of study. All right, so we've seen one purpose or goal of prayer, which is to ask for what we want. But we've also seen that behind that goal, there is this other purpose, to reaffirm our relationship with God. And what we're going to discover is that this purpose is actually behind the other two goals of prayer as well. So let's look now at the second goal of prayer, which is to align our will with God's will. I think this second goal has to always be borne in mind, even when we're praying for the things that we want. Because asking for our will to align with God's is essentially asking for detachment from what we want. Or rather, it's asking for God's help in learning how to want for ourselves, for others, and for the world what God wants. Let's look at how this idea is expressed in a passage from Abdul Baha. He says, O thou who art turning thy face towards God, close thine eyes to all things else and open them to the realm of the All Glorious. Ask whatsoever thou wishest of Him alone, seek whatsoever thou seekest from Him alone. With a look, He granteth a hundred thousand hopes. With a glance he healeth a hundred thousand incurable ills. With a nod he layeth balm on every wound. With a glimpse he freeth the hearts from the shackles of grief. Okay, so just to pause there. Until now, this is an affirmation that we can pray for our wants. Ask whatsoever thou wishest of him. And it also affirms that God is powerful to do anything, including, presumably, solve all of the problems that we go to him with. But then Abdu'l-Bahá goes on. He doeth as he doeth, and what recourse have we? He carrieth out his will, he ordaineth what he pleaseth. Then better for thee to bow down thy head in submission, and put thy trust in the all-merciful Lord. There are innumerable other passages from the prayers revealed by Bahá'u'lláh and Abdu'l-Bahá that also speak to this idea of aligning our will with gods. I'd like to mention just a couple from the long obligatory prayer, which I already mentioned. One of the very earliest passages in that prayer is, I beseech thee, God that is, by them who are the daysprings of thine invisible essence, the most exalted, the all-glorious, to make of my prayer a fire that will burn away the veils which have shut me out from thy beauty, and a light that will lead me unto the ocean of thy presence. So we ask that the prayer itself become a means to bring us closer to God, not to get any other thing that we might want. Later the prayer says, Behold me, standing ready to do thy will and thy desire, and wishing naught else except thy good pleasure. I implore thee by the ocean of thy mercy and the day star of thy grace to do with thy servant as thou willest and pleasest. O God, my God, look not upon my hopes and my doings, nay, rather look upon thy will that hath encompassed the heavens and the earth. By thy most great name, O thou Lord of all nations, I have desired only without its desire, and love only without its love. Praying in this way to align our will with God's is a very potentially powerful thing to do. I'll get into why I think it's powerful in a moment, um, but it's also clearly a hard thing to do. And I think one wisdom behind the central figures of the Baha'i faith, having given us so many prayers to use, in other words, they wrote prayers that we can say rather than having us simply rely on our own, our own words, I think one wisdom behind this is that, at least speaking for myself, the words that they've given me really do teach me what prayer is, even as I'm praying. So, you know, I might feel on a given day I'm in trouble, uh, some material trouble, an emotional trouble. I'd better pray because I think I need X, Y, Z in order to fix me or to solve my problems or to make me happy. But if I pay attention to the words as I say these prayers, they gently reorient and reshape what I think I need towards what I actually need which is alignment with the will of God. Okay, now that might not be something that we find easy to agree with. Don't I know what I want, what's good for me? Why shouldn't I pursue my own will? What's the value in even having a will of my own, if then I'm just going to try to align it with God's will, assuming I can even know what that is? I think the answer to this is about finding true freedom. There's a very interesting passage from Abdu'l-Bahá that hints at this. So speaking of prayer, he he starts by saying that God can answer prayers for healing specifically. Uh, so this sounds a lot like that first goal of prayer. Abdu'l-Baha says, Spirit has influence. Prayer has spiritual effect. Therefore we pray, O oh God, heal this sick one. Perchance God will answer. Does it matter who prays? God will answer the prayer of every servant if that prayer is urgent. His mercy is vast, illimitable. He answers the prayers of all his servants. Okay, so far so good. But then he says something that I find very interesting. He says, he, this is God, of course, he answers the prayers of this plant. The plant prays potentially, oh God, send me rain. God answers the prayer and the plant grows. God will answer anyone. All right, so what can it possibly mean to say that a plant prays? Now, I can't pretend to know. Although Abdu'l-Baha elsewhere explains that Phenomena like love, for instance, are expressed at all levels of creation. It's only the manner of their expression that differs. So in humans, we have love as we understand it. But even in the mineral kingdom, love does exist. It's simply expressed as the force of attraction that draws matter together. So prayer, in some sense, can exist in other kingdoms too. But what's interesting, I think, is to note what the plant is praying for. It's praying for rain, which is a thing that nature... And we also know from the Baha'i writings that nature is the expression of God's will. It's praying for a thing that nature ordains for it. The plant is not praying uh, for meat, for instance, though I suppose if it was maybe a Venus flytrap, it could even do that. So in other words, the plant is fully aligned with God's will. Its prayer for what it wants and needs is the same as God's wish for the plant. Now, we humans, of course, having minds of our own can pray for anything we want. And that includes things that God does not intend for us. Like a plant praying for meat, we might ask for things that God knows are not good for us. God, of course, if he exists, must have will, a uh, greater will than ours, and greater knowledge and wisdom, also greater kindness and mercy. That will means that God is free to answer in whatever way he pleases. But the knowledge, wisdom, kindness, and mercy mean that an answer from God that seems bad to us may just be better than the answer that we wanted. So that's one reason as to why we should pray to align ourselves with God's will, rather than simply pray for what we want. God, in short, knows best. Now, if that's not satisfying, and I know that in moments of pain it may not be, even for someone who intellectually accepts that God knows best, here's another reason to be thankful for prayers that help us submit to God's will. It's that these prayers take us away from a very old way of thinking about prayer. People throughout history have fallen into a kind of magical thinking, uh, a superstitious attempt to exert control over a chaotic universe through ritual or invocation. So if you sacrifice at the altar in the right way or do the ceremonial dance correctly, you can exert control over the spirits. Uh, sort of a, an illustration of this. I, I recently read a history of the Carthaginian general Hannibal, uh, his invasion of Italy uh, in the Uh, 3rd century BC was the greatest calamity that the Roman Republic had experienced to that time. And after a particularly disastrous battle, the first thing that the political authorities in Rome did was they checked to make sure that all of the religious ceremonies in the city were being conducted exactly correctly. And in fact, they found that there were some discrepancies. Some Some of the ceremonies had slipped. They were being done laxly. And so they insisted that the first thing to be done is to make sure that all of these are being done exactly correctly. Why? Well, the idea, I think, was that if we're doing the steps exactly right, then the gods cannot help but be on our side. Um, Again, an attempt to control something like the invasion of a foreign power that is part of the chaos of the universe and cannot be completely controlled, even by the uh, the most skilled politicians or generals. Now, I don't mean to say this as a way of disparaging that way of looking at the world. You know, I spoke at the beginning about my own relationship to prayer. Part of that relationship has been informed by the fact that I had the luxury of not growing up uh, with an instinctual reliance on prayer because I grew up in privilege. You know, I had just enough privilege in my upbringing to create an illusion of control, a sense that the world is run by... Uh, rules that are fully intelligible to me and that can be made to serve my interests. But that is, of course, an illusion. We will never control the world outside us. We can It can look like it for a time, but ultimately we only control ourselves, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Viewed in that light, I think the only true freedom in life comes from submission to God's will, because then your will is no longer at war with a world that will not bow to it. So thus, Abdu'l-Bahá says, as we mentioned, He doeth as he doeth, and what recourse have we? He carrieth out his will, he ordaineth what he pleaseth. Then better for thee to bow down thy head in submission, and put thy trust in the all-merciful Lord. Interestingly, this resonates quite strongly with the conclusions of um, certain philosophers throughout history, including notably the Stoic philosophers, who realize that it's, it's not events that make us suffer, so much as our emotional reactions to them. If we can learn to align ourselves with the will of nature, as the Stoics called it, which is simply the reality of what is, if we can learn to align with that by accepting it without judgment, then we're freed from this unhappiness. And prayer, in the Baha'i understanding, is a great assistance in doing just that. We have the bounty of asking God directly for his help in submitting our will to his. Now there's a final goal of prayer that needs to be mentioned, a third goal in my reading of the Baha'i writings. The first two goals reflect the fact that we are distant from God. So in the first goal of prayer, we are powerless down here, and he is powerless up there. Uh, sorry, powerful up there, and so we pray to him for assistance. In the second goal of prayer, we have our own will, and we know it's not fully aligned with God's will. We're at a distance from him, so we pray to come closer. But the third goal of prayer removes this distance. So here's another passage from Abdu'l-Baha that reflects this third goal. He writes, The wisdom of prayer is this, that it causeth a connection between the servant and the true one, because in that state man with all heart and soul turneth his face towards His Highness the Almighty, seeking his association, and desiring his love and compassion. The greatest happiness for a lover is to converse with his beloved, and the greatest gift for a seeker is to become familiar with the object of his longing. That is why with every soul who is attracted to the kingdom of God, his greatest hope is to find an opportunity to entreat and supplicate before his beloved, appeal for his mercy and grace, and be immersed in the ocean of his utterance, goodness, and generosity. Abdu'l-Baha also says elsewhere, in the highest prayer, men pray only for love of God, not because they fear him or hell or hope for bounty or heaven. When a man falls in love with a human being, it is impossible for him to keep from mentioning the name of his beloved. How much more difficult is it to keep from mentioning the name of God when one has come to love him? The spiritual man finds no delight in anything, save in commemoration of God. And Abdu'l-Baha also says, If one friend loves another, is it not natural that he should wish to say so? Though he knows that the friend is aware of his love, does he not still wish to tell him of it? It is true that God knows the wishes of all hearts but the impulse to pray is a natural one, springing from man's love to God. I think these passages speak for themselves so powerfully that I won't say much more about this third goal, uh, the goal that Abdu'l-Baha calls the highest prayer, praying only for love of God. I will uh, I will conclude though by saying a little bit about how this understanding of prayer has operated in my own experience. Uh, and I'll first say that it was only recently that I started to think about prayer in terms of these three goals. Uh, as I was sort of reading what the Baha'i writing said about prayer. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, to advance my own thinking on the subject. Now, we might be tempted to see a hierarchy in these three types of prayer. After all, Abdu'l-Baha says praying for love of God is the highest prayer. And then after that, we would imagine that praying to conform with God's will, that, that second goal, is probably higher than praying for just what we want, the first goal. But as I'm coming to understand it, all three are stressed in you know the passages and the prayers that I share shared here as well as many others for, for very good reason. Because I think we do need, or I'll, I'll at least say I, I need, all three types of prayer here. As for the first goal about asking for what we want, I think there's a freedom that comes from honestly stating what I think I need or, or what I want and then praying for it. But of course I try not to do this in isolation. If this was the only kind of prayer that I said, Well, then I'd be like a child who only calls home when they need something from their parents. That's unfair to the parent, and it's probably pretty bad for the child's character development as well. Instead, I can think of those kinds of prayers, the prayers asking for the things that I want, as an offering. So I can state my wants, and then I can surrender them to God, because my next prayer is to learn and align myself with God's will. This prayer helps me to detach from any expectation with respect to how God might answer the prayer for what I want. I'm expressing that I fully trust God to answer in whatever way is best. And I'm also praying for the spiritual maturity to be completely satisfied with whatever that answer may be. And I think that way of thinking about it also clarifies for me why I don't want to only pray in that third goal in a way that expresses love for God. Uh, And and only does that. You know, these may be the highest prayers, but I know for myself, if they're the only kind that I do, then I might neglect the work that I absolutely still need to do to align my will with God's. You know, there are some strains of mystical uh, Sufi thinking that emphasize the ecstatic reunion with God at the expense of obedience. Uh, Some schools of Sufi thought even held that for a true mystic, it was no longer important to obey the laws that God reveals. And you can see this in different forms of of worship today, where the love relationship with the divine is so emphasized that almost no behavioral standard is is expected. No standard of behavior is is demanded. That's not the Baha'i model, as I understand it. And that's not because, in my view, God wants to be obeyed for any reason that has to do with him. It's instead because reality is, simply put, a reflection of God's will. So if we don't align with God's will, we are operating at odds with reality, and, and that's not a way that we want to live. I'd like to conclude by um, bringing up a quotation from Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, that will help us shift our gaze from the purely personal uh, dimension of prayer, which has been the focus of what I've talked about, a bit broader to the social implications of prayer. So Shoghi Effendi writes... The universal crisis affecting mankind therefore, is therefore essentially spiritual in its causes. The spirit of the age taken on the whole is irreligious. Man's outlook on life is too crude and materialistic to enable him to elevate himself into the higher realms of the spirit. It is this condition so sadly morbid into which society has fallen that religion seeks to improve and transform. For the core of religious faith is that mystic feeling which unites man with God. This state of spiritual communion can be brought about and maintained by means of meditation and prayer. And this is the reason why Baha'u'llah has so much stressed the importance of worship. It is not sufficient for a believer merely to accept and observe the teachings. He should, in addition, cultivate the sense of spirituality, which he can acquire chiefly by means of prayer. This is such an interesting quotation because it reminds us that our collective life, the life of our societies, is a spiritual one as well as a material one. It can be so easy to forget this, even for religious people who live in an individualistic society. We can make prayer and spirituality just a personal thing. But Shoghi Effendi seems to say that while that state of communion, the mystic feeling which unites man with God, is of course nurtured by individuals cultivating a prayer life, This will have implications for what he calls the universal crisis affecting mankind because it will help us shake free from our limited and limiting crude and materialistic outlook on life. Baha'u'llah also speaks to the social implications of prayer and he does so in mystical terms when he writes that when a person prays privately, quote, the scattering angels of the Almighty shall scatter abroad the fragrance of the words uttered by his mouth and shall cause the heart of every righteous man to throb. So we can remember that when we pray, we are not only conversing with God, but also making a contribution to the spiritualization
0: of humanity as a whole. Thank you, Michael, for that uh, very enlightening, well-structured talk. I, I found myself uh, making so many connections as I was listening to it. And I so deeply appreciated the way that you interwove some of the quotes um, in together. And I think one of the questions that really struck me off the bat is, you know, so you're speaking of uh, prayer as a conversation with God. And I loved how you highlighted that really the tone of that conversation with God has to be uh, one that, that communicates an underlying sense of love and connection, and that the possibility that this uh, that that sense of prayer provides is a promise of living in a world uh, that's always permeated by connection. It strikes me that, that, you know, that's something that, I mean, people are deeply lonely and people lack that sense of connection and their meaningful connection. So I, I, the thing I was wondering was like, how, what are some of the things that could stand in the way as barriers to developing that state of, uh, that type of connection, that type of tone that's permeated by love, I mean, in your prayer with God.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I guess the, I can just answer with sort of what comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that for me, I know there's a significant difference between intellectual belief and then the sort of emotional qualities that we associate with uh, faith. Uh, So the idea of love. Um, So I can approach a prayer fully believing that there is a God and that God cares about me, loves me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: can hear me, and wants to communicate with me. I can, ha- I can have all those beliefs and yet approach the prayer with all kinds of other feelings foremost in my I guess you would call it what the, the emotional part of my brain or, or my heart or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um, that are just informed by whatever else is going on in my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for me, I think that's a, that can be a powerful obstacle um, of just sort of being distracted,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not, not recognizing that I'm distracted or if I recognize it, not taking the time to make a bit of a break from whatever's been going on in my day before to, if not to immediately make that connection of, this is a conversation with my creator, whom I love and who loves me. If not to make that correction, at least to recognize that I want to.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, even if we don't want the right things, we can at least want to want them, I think as a, as a first step. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think speaking for myself, I think that is the biggest barrier is mm-hmm. distraction. And Mm -hmm. I suspect that that is reasonably common in the age that we uh, live in where we are increasingly distracted from everything that holds meaning. So, yeah, yeah, recognizing that as a problem, I think is the first step to addressing it.
0: So it it struck me that, um, so this idea of the lifeless prayer like, what do you think are some of the consequences of sustaining a practice of prayer that is lifeless, essentially? Like, mm-hmm. like you believe in it on the one hand, mm-hmm. right? But you, the, in your action of continual prayer, it doesn't get you to that place of communion or that mystic feeling that the guardian emphasizes—you that mm-hmm. unites man with his creator, that that's the foundation of religion. right? So what? Ha- like, what are you think? Because in some ways, it's kind of it can be this kind of self reinforcing loop. Um, what do you think are some of the consequences of sustaining a habit of lifeless prayer?
1: Mm. Well, um, one that comes to mind right away is I think it relates to this concept that I talked about of of slipping into a ritualistic understanding of prayer mm-hmm. because you aren't. Um, focusing on connection you fundamentally aren't listening to who's on the other end of the line anymore you're you're not actually even really interested in in what god might have to say you're instead making an order over the telephone or you're doing an incantation
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) and if you if, if you don't realize or you forget that the purpose is to for is to create connection but you still keep praying if you're oblivious to that um lack in your prayer, then really what you're doing has become uh, a ritual. And then you might start, and I think one danger there is you could start to fall into a very, um, you can feel very self-righteous or or justified that you are performing the right steps. And so whatever you do following those in, in the world must be right, must be uh, sanctified in some way because you've you've completed the steps. It can be kind of this binary thing, like I've done the prayers, I've completed the ritual, I've made the sacrifice uh, sort of in an older style of religion. And so now God will be on my side. But I, I don't I don't know that for me, that's the great danger.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: the greater danger is just honestly, I don't know. I mean, we, we, we could think of a, of a number of, bad consequences, but the greatest danger is just sort of a um, wasted time. Like these are times when I could have tried to get a little bit closer and instead I, I didn't. Now one, one may be exception to that. It's quite interesting that we have the concept of an obligatory prayer in mm-hmm. the Baha'i faith. Um, and it's certainly not the only religion in which this is a concept, but for other prayers. So it says in the, in the Baha'i writings, um, things like you should, uh, read as much of the, you know, the scriptures as uh, will not make you weary. Don't become over weary with, with reading mm-hmm. better to read mm-hmm. one, one verse with radiance than a whole book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same concept applies to prayers. The prolongation of prayer is not desired. Mm. Uh, it says, mm-hmm. so in other words, we should pray when we feel moved to pray. The exception I think is, is the obligatory prayer where it doesn't matter mm-hmm. How you feel if the day has gone by and you have not yet said your obligatory prayer say it and i've i've had people say and I, I think this this feels right to me that maybe in a way that's out of allowance for our human weaknesses and the fact that we won't always feel feel it
0: mm-hmm.
1: this obedience to that law will ensure that at least we're keeping the connection open um, mm-hmm. holding a place for a conversation that might later become richer when we are, you know, mm-hmm. when we are better able to, to approach it in the right
0: spirit. So if somebody is having difficulty cultivating mm-hmm. that that uh, rich connection with mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. do your three forms of prayer like can they be used as different access points? Mm-hmm. do do you see what I'm getting at? So like on the one hand, you're wanting assistance, right? Mm -hmm. Or you need something. I mean, uh, we all need something and often what we need, we don't get right in life. And, and so that's, might be one access point. The second access point is that issue of like alignment, alignment of your will cultivating the, um, cultivating the ability to submit in recognition of the fact that the only true freedom comes not in getting what you want but in learning how to um, step aside from your wants and and see the greater wisdom in not not getting them and then the third being that connection of love like are there different kind of do those follow do certain types of strategies to cultivate that relationship follow from those three forms of prayer?
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question. I I'd have to think about it. I don't think I have a good answer off the bat. And I'd be curious what, if you, if you have an idea on it, maybe what what I would say is that if I had to think of a strategy to create connection where there isn't one, mm-hmm. um, I think to the extent that one of the problems might be distraction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it could be helpful to before prayer to, uh, well, in my case, what I would do is I would, I would write. So sort of write out why is it that I am, what is distracting me? What is on my mind? Mm. What's what's yeah. what What's sort of what's in me that's blocking connection and distracting me. Once I can get that out there, then Having expressed it, I think then if I open the prayer book and read the words, I think they can sink in a little bit. There's this idea, Abdu'l-Baha says, that when one's cup is full of self, there's no room in it for the water of life. Wow. And I think that... You know the self is constantly refilling that cup <laughs> uh-huh. yes, um, I suspect so it's a bit of a can seem like a bit of a bottomless well at times yes but but really one for me, one way to empty the cup at least for a while is to empty it onto the page, like let the mm-hmm. self say what it has to, and then you can kind of it's you know people say the same thing about if you can't sleep because your mm-hmm. mind is racing, write it all out Mhm
0: one of the things i really loved about so in this first um you the the first form of prayer that you kind of mm-hmm. highlight is that which um so you seek aid and assistance and then abdul baha says such because such becometh the rank of servitude mm. so in a sense like reaffirming our station of servitude like is an entry point to sincere prayer, it seems to me. Um, but, and I suppose that comes, like, I mean, that lesson is reaffirmed across religions, really, that, um, like, you're not at the center of existence. You know, no matter how great the station you hold is, um, you, you are in a position of dependence. Mm. Mm. Like, when the prayer is lifeless, um, like maybe that's one of the diagnostic factors, like that that station is not as clearly emphasized in your own mind. That, yeah. And so then like, how do you cultivate that station of, of servitude um because like you know, as we were talking about earlier on before or the- rec- before our recording here, like you face so many difficulties in the world, and then I mean, my reaction is always to just push forward right. on, uh given the tools that I have, given yep. the strategies that I have devised yep. this is the the effort that I have i'm going to invest, reinvest, double down in the effort that I have, mm-hmm. and it doesn't come that naturally, let's say, to just say, okay, I just, I have to let this go. Mm-hmm. And my efforts are not, I don't make effort on the assumption that my effort is gonna lead to what I think it's gonna lead to. Uh, cause that's very linear. Like your mm-hmm. actions never lead to cause and effect. <laughs> Right. and and so you always we always have this habit of envisioning the effect that comes from the cause which is our effort mm-hmm. and it just sets you up and i just i'm saying it because it's so it's so self-evident in a way but i always fall into this trap yeah. and then and then i get to a point of just kind of despair that my efforts are really not producing what i want them to produce
1: yeah um, absolutely yeah, I think there's a lot there. I I found that very helpful. I this image of being, the the words that I I, I think on a lot are the idea of being at war with the world, mm-hmm. not in a not in the sense of actual sort of military activity, but in the sense that no, for sure. I I think when when we misunderstand who we are in creation, what our role is, and we so easily fall into the instinctual habit of thinking we are the center of creation, like mm-hmm. kind of this, this solipsistic attitude which is part of our, maybe that's especially strong in our society and our time, but I think it's a a way of thinking that humans can easily fall into. When evidence mounts as it does every day that that cannot possibly be the case, like, I mean, the sun orders the solar system. Um, If we put ourselves in the position of the sun and look out at our solar system, how come it is not being ordered by us? It's utter chaos and mm-hmm. and it's terrifying when you when you think of how utterly out of control it is that's then we're constantly you know it's Sisyphus pushing a boulder uphill and wondering you know why it isn't simply just obeying our will mm. so this idea of, of being in the station of servitude I I think there's a I think that's very powerful in thinking about the communicative nature of prayer so Abdul Baha I don't know who I don't know who provided this image where it comes from. But I've heard this idea that to understand or to get a, a picture of the station that Abdu'l-Bahá had.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so
1: Abdu'l-Bahá's title literally means the servant of Baha. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: and it was the title that he took on himself. He, Everyone around him referred to him as the master. And that was, in fact, the title that Bahá'u'lláh referred to him as, Al-Gha, the master. But for himself, Abdu'l-Bahá chose the title of servant. And there's this image that describes what the servitude meant it was the idea that if Bahá'u'lláh was the tallest mountain, then Abdu'l-Bahá made himself the lowest valley, the utmost station of servitude. And the result was that all of the, if you think about the relation of a mountain and a valley, when the glaciers on the mountain melt, all the water pours and accumulates in the lowest point, in the lowest Mm -hmm. valley. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So all of the power available goes to that valley. And so it was, that, that that's how people talking about Abdu'l-Baha always talk in these seemingly um, irresolvable paradoxes that he was both the embodiment of kingship and yet mm-hmm. the essence of humility. Mm-hmm. And you look at kings in, in, in the world and you think, well, I see the kingship, I don't see the humility. Mm-hmm. Or you see the <laughs> you know, truly sort of people who we think of as very meek and we say, well, where's the kingship? And yet Abdu'l-Baha effortlessly had both. And so if mm-hmm. we think then about the nature of prayer, If we can be in that kind of servitude, then the communication, the flow of energy comes from the summit of the mountain down to the valley. And then when, but when we think that we are mountains, well, the mountain's not going to send its, you know, the tallest mountain isn't going to send the melting water down its slope and then up another mountain, it's not going to do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: It it strikes me that in order to really embody that, like it takes disrupting a pattern that, so we've all internalized that story Yes, that of individual agency and mm. kind of the rogue self that you know you push the world forward through your own efforts. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, it takes disrupting that that story yeah. to yeah. Uh, reestablish the efforts on on another center. Yes. And, and
1: when you think about disrupting the story, let's then come back to obligatory prayer, the short obligatory prayer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which I've actually been saying a lot recently because I think it's the one that I need to focus on at the moment. It's very short,
0: mm-hmm.
1: very, very short. One of its statements is, I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth. There is none other God but thee the help in peril, the self-subsisting. So if that's our connection, our daily mandatory connection to God, then at its core, it is a reminder that we are the valley and that God is the mountain. So the very nature mm-hmm. of, the, of that, that that connection that we're supposed to have every day is is one to get us out of that way of thinking that can be such an obstacle to sincere prayer. Um, mm. And I've, I've been saying it recently with a new understanding. Like I've, I've said it for years thinking, yes, I understand. I am powerless and God is powerful. That's just a rational consequence of the setup of the universe. If
0: God <laughs> created
1: it and I'm in it, then obviously I'm nothing compared to him. But to actually say it with a, a conviction that this is not only true, but it's good is, is quite different. And to be sort of joyful about it say, yes, I'm powerless. How, how liberating. I don't need to be the sun ordering the, the solar system. <laughs> I can let someone more competent fill that role. <laughs> but it's so, tough. You know, I, I can feel it in the moment of prayer and then step away, and 10 minutes later, I'm still trying to juggle all of the balls
0: in my life and keep them in the air. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So how does that, so at the end of your uh, presentation, you, you highlight the social implications of prayer and, and connected to that uh, quote of the guardian that mm. our, uh, the universal crisis affecting mankind is spiritual. And what this means is on the, like, because our outlook is materialistic and irreligious. And as a result, you can't elevate yourself to the high realms of the spirit. And that's a social condition. That's the condition in which society has fallen. And that therefore, that the core of religion being that mystic connection um, so religion then becomes kind of like an empty shell because we do not have the dispositions, the attitudes, the awareness about how to bring ourselves to the higher realms of the spirit, and I, I mean that's like largely as a result of the severing connection uh, of our of prayer, basically. Um, so I guess my question is, how does what we were just talking about connect to the like the social level of things? Mm. Well.
1: I left it to the end of the presentation because I thought it was quite a challenging statement, and I honestly didn't have a strong sense of how it how it plays out in practical terms. I think because I, I am part of this crude and materialistic society. <laughs> um mm-hmm. I guess some some initial ideas. I if we look at the world and we see okay, there's all these problems and we want to try to fix them. So we see that there is a crisis affecting mankind, and we can describe it in various terms.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we then immediately set about trying to fix it, drawing on our own resources, looking mm-hmm. purely in this sort of material plane to find the the people and the the ideas that will that will fix things. Um, mm-hmm. If it is true that you know there is a God and that our fundamental reality is spiritual and the material is simply a a projection of that reality. Uh, As Bahá'u'lláh says, this world is a shadow reaching out. If that is true and we stay in the shadow world and try to create change in it using only the powers available in the shadow world, then... I mean, the overwhelming powers in this world are sort of existing structures of power that exist in society or the Mm -hmm. brute forces of nature, which we don't really have much control over um, as Mm -hmm. much as we like to think we do. And both of those frankly are acting against us. The existing institutions of power have proven completely incapable of mounting a sufficient response to the great crisis of our time, which I would say is climate change. Mm -hmm. And certainly Mm -hmm. the powers of nature are the ones that are dictating that it is a crisis. So what are we going to do? Are we going to draw on smaller powers in this world to try to erode those big powers? Mm -hmm. We try to assemble these smaller powers by, for instance, creating solidarity between groups. And Mm -hmm. um, we can create a little bit of solidarity here and there. And then it often gets disrupted as people start to think that their interests are no longer served by this new collective um, or the existing powers recognize a threat and stamp it out. But if it is true, that we are in a material existence underpinned by a spiritual one, that God originates the entire system and infuses energy into it and is asking us to commune with him Mm -hmm. and to draw energy Mm -hmm. from him, then suddenly that changes the equation entirely. Um,
0: So really what you're saying then is like, these are uh, orientation The skills that we possess in orienting ourselves towards a higher power, and that entails uh, active cultivation of our awareness of our station of servitude, Mm. active skills in submitting our will to the will of something greater than us, Mm. and um, uh, actively cultivating a love for the highest good, which Mm. is so basically according to what your like, your categorization of, like, mm-hmm. as you found within the Baha'i writings, like, that's basically what prayer is. Um, that is, like, the chief, it's one of the chief elements of our, our strategy to rehabilitate the fortunes of the world. Like, the people who make up the world need to have a solid foundation, those skills, uh, in order to affect the right type of, Change in the world. Yeah. yeah, that that strikes me as um, very powerful. Mm.
1: As you were sort of sort of summarizing that, the image that came to mind is uh, <laughs> these uh, Mars rovers that they send up to uh, to Mars to mm-hmm. scoot around and make interesting discoveries. Uh, crucial to the success of those is um, you know they can't carry a power source from Earth that's going to last them any amount of time. They need to rely on solar energy, so they have solar mm-hmm. panels. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe what we are is, you know, I mean Baha'u'llah makes it clear that whether we pray or not, we are con- constantly, all of us, sustained by God's love. Mm. And that's true of the entire creation. If God withheld his will from anything in creation, it would simply blink out of existence.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so that's that's I mean, whether whether we want to believe that or not, that's the that's the claim that Baha'u'llah makes. It's almost as if we are solar-powered. Robots roving around the planet. Everything we do is powered by the sun, ultimately, mm-hmm. but we don't realize that that we are solar pad, panel powered. We think that you know. We think that we have a combustion engine inside us that just creates power out of stuff we scavenge off of off of the ground. Hmm. Um, and so we don't, not realizing we have a solar panel, we don't turn it to the sun. It just picks up ambient light, and so we're running around on ambient, whatever power we can get from that ambient light, which is insignificant compared to what we would get if we recognize that we have a solar panel and recognize that there is a sun and then pointed Mm -hmm. the panel to the sun and said, I am powerless, you are great.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that it's so easy to... um, become unaware of the source on which we're drawing. Mm. And it, like the quote that comes to me is, I have created the rich wherewith, like, why have you abased yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, Why have you lost sight of the true source on which you have to draw and on which you are drawing? yeah: So perhaps we can end it there, Michael. Um, and I just I want to thank you so much for preparing those beautiful thoughts for us and um, bringing this conversation to us and really helping us wrap our mind around uh, this vast and deep subject. I, I just I'm so appreciative to you, and I know our listeners are too.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, as I said at the start, I'm hoping the, the main goal is not, I think, that you or I will have said things that people find amazing, but that anything we might have said might prompt them to look themselves at, at the revelation to sort of to dive into the ocean. So thank you. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to have the conversation. Okay. My pleasure, Michael.
0: Have a good day. Bye. Bye.